0: Hey, friends, welcome back to The Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We make keeping up with the literature easy, like having the latest research spoon fed to you through your earbuds. For a quick look ahead, let's see what we'll be covering this week. First off, we're revisiting some points about advanced practice providers. Then how bad are we really at suicide risk screening? After that, choices, 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 so many choices then a few changes to the standard Gone clam treatment, and finally, prednisone for cluster headaches. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which were all this week brought to you by the zesty Clay Smith. Now then, the first article, which was titled, Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine Number 308, Taking Care of Patients Every Day with Physician's Assistance and Nurse Practitioners, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Over the last summer, we covered an article about advanced practice providers. Our spoonful was essentially that these APPs saw fewer patients per hour, and these patients were lower complexity patients than physicians were seeing. The story didn't end there, though, and since then there's been a fair amount of social media buzz around this, especially following the skeptic side to Emergency Medicine, who covered a podcast on this, and as well they publish an academic journal of emergency medicine. So let's dig back into this article to give some credit to some of the additional points which were raised about the study. This study included 94 sites staffed by the same national emergency medicine group and encompassed 13 million patient visits. 75% of the visits were seen by physicians who generated 3.7 relative value units per visit, while nurse practitioners only generated 2.8 and physician's assistants 2.7. Physicians also saw 2.2 patients per hour, while APPs saw exactly half at 1.1 patients per hour. But there didn't seem to be any difference in safety or quality of care. So... Some relevant points that were brought up over social media. A key issue was that the number 1.1 for patients per hour seen by APPs was only a measure of the patients that APPs saw completely on their own. Many patients were seen by both a physician and an advanced practice provider. In these cases, the RVUs were actually split 50-50. Now, splitting them half and half, that would imply that the physicians did half the work, which just probably isn't the case a lot of the time. Every patient with abnormal vital signs had to be seen by a physician. So you can imagine that a lot of the time they're seen by the APP and then the physician just pops their head in to say hi. This rule would also incentivize APPs to see less complex patients with normal vital signs just to be more efficient. And these may have been lower RVU generating patients. Don't forget though, that low complexity doesn't always translate into quicker visits. I mean, take a simple laceration, for example, that can take time, but isn't a complex issue. And while we're on the topic of procedures, all the physicians were actually billed under the physician's name, though it's likely that some procedures were not done by the doctor, but instead just supervised. But that wouldn't have come out in the data. And then finally, APPs often have other duties in the emergency department, which may not generate RVUs, but still contribute to emergency department flow. Now, this paper got personal real quick for a lot of people, but I hope that it encourages more people to study this. In a spoonful, advanced care providers, we love you. And we'll probably need a more thorough study to convince us that you're not improving productivity. After that, we have the second article, which was titled Suicidal Ideation is Insensitive to Suicide Risk After Emergency Department Discharge, a Performance Characteristics of the Colombian Suicide Severity Rating Scale Screener, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. It'd be great if we could develop a few simple questions that could accurately predict a patient's risk of suicide. If something like that actually worked, though, then I think I might be a little bit more afraid that I'm going to be replaced by a computer a lot sooner than I thought. Now, in 2019, the U.S. Joint Commission, despite very little supporting evidence, actually mandated screening for suicidal ideation using a validated tool starting at age 12 and up. Like I said, this is a great concept. If this worked, then it would severely lower the amount of anxiety in discharging patients who were potentially suicidal. And it would also ease the burden on our psychiatry team in the emergency departments who have to do consults on these patients pretty often. First though, this screening approach would have to work. This study was an evaluation of the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale to predict self-harm and suicide in a year following screening. The long version of the rating scale actually did well in an emergency psychiatric patient's population for research purposes, which is great. It's the reason we're talking about it now. But what matters most and what you know is important for us is the real world, mass screening in a general emergency department population, which is what was done here. From roughly 93,000 patients screened, 11 sadly committed suicide. Local and state hospital records were checked to try to catch all instances. The sensitivity of screening for suicide by 30 days was only 18%. And that feels kind of like just a shot in the dark to me. The specificity was pretty great, it was 99%, but it's sensitivity that we want here. Nine of the 11 patients who died screened negative for suicide, and only one of them had an ED psychiatric assessment. The tool did a bit better for self harm by 30 days, but still only a sensitivity of 53%. Now, people who commit suicide aren't dumb, they're just misguided, so they're not likely to give answers that are going to be very helpful to you per se. With this in mind, 99% of the people who screened positive did not die by suicide, and 73% of those who did die by suicide screened negative. So for every true positive, there was almost three missed suicides. If we're screening positive way too much, then we're putting too much strain on our psychiatric consultants and taking them away from, you know, where their time is better spent. In a spoonful, emergency department screening for suicide was extremely inaccurate, with a sensitivity of just 18%. Following that, we have the third article, which was titled Decision Fatigue in the Emergency Department, How Does Emergency Physician Decision-Making Change Over an Eight-Hour Shift? out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. All doctors are gradually becoming increasingly well-versed in the areas of cognitive bias. One such cognitive bias that should not be ignored is decision fatigue. Having to make decisions especially with from many choices can impair your executive function and can actually influence subsequent decision-making. Choices are hard. We all know this. It's a pain to make them sometimes. And when presented with too many choices, this can actually cause choice paralysis. And then regretting choices made subtracts from the satisfaction that you have, and this is called opportunity cost. So in short, the more choices you make, often the worse decisions you will tend to make in the future and the less happy you'll be with them. But that's mostly based on sort of life in general. How is this affecting you on your shift? This was a retrospective study of a single center over two years with patients who were moderate acuity but were not admitted. The decision the authors decided to focus on was getting a consult or ordering a CT over an eight-hour shift. They hypothesized that physicians would get more consults and order more CTs near the end of their shift because of decision bias. And this would be biasing them towards what seems like the easier and sort of safer decision. However, contrary to their hypothesis, they actually find that consultation and CT scans decreased over the course of the shift. And there was also a decrease in the emergency department length of stay later in the shift, with no increase in the 72-hour return visit rates. So what I see as a common theme here is that emergency department docs seem to be making decisions that minimize the work that they're going to pass on to the next doctor, which of course makes sense. Handover is dangerous even. I find it hard to believe that ER physicians don't suffer from decision fatigue, but if consults and CT scans are a good measure, then it appears that they aren't. In a spoonful, emergency physicians did not seem to be influenced by decision fatigue over an 8-hour shift, or at least not in regards to consultations and CT scans. Then we have the fourth article, which was titled Update to the CDC's Treatment Guidelines for Gonococcal Infection 2020 out of the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Details? These are nitpicky details. Details? But this is also something that's not uncommon to treat, so it's important. Now, since 2010, the CDC has recommended uncomplicated gonorrhea of the cervix, urethra, or rectum be treated with septriaxone at 250 mg IM once, and then, if chlamydia status is unknown, and let's be honest, it probably is, then add 1 gram of azithromycin PO once. This was 10 years ago, though, so we've got to keep up with the times. Neisseria gonorrhea is increasingly resistant to azithromycin, and I know what you're thinking, well, we have ceftriaxone to treat that, and that's why we're giving ceftriaxone. But dual coverage with azithromycin was thought to be important for reducing the resistance to ceftriaxone, and it was useful. Now, that's kind of out the window. Also, there's been some increasing evidence of mycoplasma genitalium being resistant to azithromycin. And there's concern of efficacy when treating chlamydia even, especially rectal disease. So as a replacement, now doxycycline at 100mg PO-BID for 7 days is recommended instead. Also, to increase the effectiveness of ceftriaxone, especially for gonococcal disease of the pharynx, ceftriaxone is now increased to 500mg IM as a single dose. So in a spoonful, the new recommended regime from the CDC for treating gonorrhea is ceftriaxone 500mg IM once, And if the chlamydia status is unknown, then add doxycycline 100mg P.O.B.I.D. for 7 days. Then finally we have the last article which was titled Safety and Advocacy of Prednisone vs. Placebo in Short-Term Prevention of Episodic Cluster Headaches A Multi-Center Double-Blinded Randomized Control Trial out of the Lancet Neurology. Now the prophylactic treatment with verapamil for cluster headaches we know is actually very effective. But the dose is going to matter. And as with many medications, you know, start low and go slow as you try to get to the right dose. In the meantime, many give prednisone to combat the headaches that could happen before you get to the right dose of verapamil. And honestly, even avoiding one headache could increase patient quality of life. So is this practice evidence-based? Let's take a look. This was a multicenter blinded placebo-controlled RCT with 116 patients who received prednisone 100 milligrams for five days and then a taper by 20 milligrams every three days. That gives 17 total days of prednisone versus a placebo. All the while, verapamil is actually being titrated up from 40 mg to 120 mg TID over the course of 19 days. The mean number of attacks in the prednisone group was actually lower compared to placebo, which is good. It was 7.1 in the prednisone group and 9.5 in the placebo group. Also, there was 5 times more patients who had complete headache cessation in the first week with the prednisone group, at 35% of the patients. There were no serious adverse events in the treatment arm, but there were many exclusions, including diabetes, hypertension, and even gastric ulcers. Now, unfortunately, they actually had to stop the trial early because they had trouble recruiting patients and ran out of funding. In terms of generalizability, all the patients were German. You can decide if that matters for your practice or not. In a spoonful, prednisone is evidence-based and better than placebo for cluster headache prophylaxis while you titrate up for apomil. All right, guys, that wraps us up. Let's do a quick review of everything we talked about. First of all, social media clap back against data that show that APPs may not be as productive as we feel that they are. Next, the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale is not the solution to identifying risk and reducing suicide deaths. Then from the third article, I'd like to see more work on decision fatigue in the ER, but for now, you seem to be safe from it, at least when it's concerning consults and CTs. And then from the fourth article, the new CDC-recommended regime for gonorrhea is ceftriaxone 500mg IM once and doxycycline 100mg PO for 7 days if the chlamydia status is unknown. And then from the last article, while you titrate up verapamil, prednisone provides some coverage against cluster headaches. Now, you've earned them and we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles summarized can also be found there, where, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.